0: Times a year when we have many visitors, who for whom they're coming to this church is really a, a homecoming, and uh, it's always good to see all of you and our first-time visitors. Again, I want to welcome you especially. Um, but it's been a joy. I want to say a couple uh, last couple of weeks to see John and Sarah uh, Mullen back there uh, with their baby, and to see Elena with her beautiful family, her children is great to see you today. And I think others are also here. I met Mary Moderman's daughter today, and uh, there are others also in the church. And I just want to say it's wonderful always to have you here. Now, this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of Ruth, which is uh, page 322 in your pew Bibles. Um, you can pretty much uh, ignore for today... Uh, the scripture that's listed in your bulletin from Ruth one Uh, I'm really not gonna be getting into that uh, particularly much as it turns out I'd like to ask you to join with me in a word of prayer let's pray together our Father in heaven we love you and thank you for your mercy and goodness to us in Christ and that mercy and that goodness and that Savior really jump out from every page of Scripture as we understand how you have built a testimony of your grace and your determination to bring salvation to the entire world throughout the course of the Holy Scripture that we have this testimony and it is firm and it is unchanging and it is from you that it stands and will continue to stand and withstand the test of time of the most skeptical scrutiny people will always love you for who you are and we know who you are because you've revealed yourself to us in the Holy Scripture and I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight O Lord my rock and my Redeemer amen well I'll get to the reading of a passage from Ruth um, fairly shortly, but I'd like to just sort of set the stage. You know, next week, as I mentioned, when I welcomed you, begins Advent, which is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas when we anticipate the coming of our Lord Jesus. Not only anticipate how he came one, the first time, but anticipate his return as well. But I'm actually beginning the Advent series of sermons today. So it's actually a five-sermon series. Um, and I've entitled this series, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Now, obviously, we know the song, we sing it, uh, we celebrate Bethlehem. It's famous because it was Jesus' birthplace. And you can go there today. And if you go there today, uh, guides will show you the, the grotto of the manger where tradition says Mary laid her baby, her infant, Jesus. But this morning, what I want us to think about today Is how Jesus birth in Bethlehem was the culmination of a series of acts and words from God that built upon one another one after another after another in order to underscore for people of faith keep your eyes on what God does here keep your eyes on what happens in Bethlehem. You know, we Christians wouldn't sing about Bethlehem apart from Jesus' birth, but Bethlehem was celebrated long before Jesus was born. About 725 BC, the prophet Micah prophesied that the Lord's Messiah, the anointed son of David and son of God, would be born there and would rule. Micah chapter five, verse two preserves the prophecy when Micah wrote, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Ephrathah refers to the, actually the father, uh, the founder of Bethlehem and so to the family that descended from him. And it was officially a clan in Judah, but it was by this time, the seventh century BC, so small It wasn't even really classed as a clan anymore, although at one time it had been. You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you you, one shall come forth from me, one who will be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So this one who's going to come from Bethlehem, who's going to rule over Israel, is Come is coming forth is from old, from out of old, from out of eternity, literally, not from ancient days, but literally in the Hebrew text, from the days of eternity. And this was the foundation, prophetically, scripturally, for Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. But we could ask ourselves the question, what was the foundation for Micah's prophecy? And the answer is, That foundation was another birth, because Bethlehem was the birth of David, who became the king of Israel, who was from the tribe of Judah, who was of the clan of Ephrathah. David was born in Bethlehem. And he went from being a shepherd boy there to being the God-anointed king over Israel. And it was in 2 Samuel 7 that Nathan, the prophet of that time, prophesied that the Lord would raise up one of David's future offspring to rule forever. He prophesied that he would be greater than David, that he would be anointed with the Holy Spirit and reign forever, not only over Israel, but that all nations would come to him. And he would reign not only forever over all, but in perfect righteousness. And so David's birthplace, along with Nathan's prophecy, became the foundation for Micah's prophecy, which became the foundation for Jesus' birth, the very birth of the Messiah. But what about the foundation? Was there a foundation for David's birth in Bethlehem? Was there a prophecy or was there some some God-ordained event that laid the foundation for that? that it would be anticipated and the answer is yes. The entire book of Ruth constitutes that foundation. The book of Ruth. So I want to think with you this morning, I'd like to ask you to think with me about this particular book. Uh, We've looked at the role really of the book of Ruth. This is the role that the book of Ruth plays in the whole canon of scripture. It is the foundation of the foundation, David, of the foundation, Micah, of the birth of Christ. We'll see that as we go through. But I want us to think now not in terms of canon, the whole scripture. I want us to think in particular about the book of Ruth itself and what is the message of that book. It's an interesting book. Um, One of the questions that's raised is in the Hebrew scrolls, where was the book of Ruth placed? And uh, the book of Ruth was uh, most uh, most often um, it was most often uh, well it was placed after the book of Proverbs. It was placed before the book of Psalms, and it was sometimes placed and came to be its sort of settled place in the Septuagint. It came to be placed right after the book of Judges. Now, the only reason I want to mention that is because one of the re- reasons is suggested it was placed after the book of Proverbs is because Proverbs ends with Proverbs 31. It's all a story of a virtuous and noble woman. And there's no one more virtuous or no, no woman no, more noble in all the Bible than, than Ruth herself, alongside Mary and some others. But she was just an incredibly noble woman. And it's been pointed out that because you find the book of Ruth you know, before uh, uh, the Psalms, Uh, which is where we now put uh, the book of Job the book of Ruth really has a job-like quality Uh, Naomi is the Madam Job of the Old Testament she suffers uh, tremendously and then we find the book of Ruth also as you find it in your translation our edition of the Bible you find it after the book of Judges and it was seen by the first century by a number of Jews uh, who were uh, scholars, they really re- regarded Ruth as, a, as an addition to the book of Judges that was just before it because it was written or at least it, the story it tells occurred in the time of Judges. It's a wonderful book, it's very interesting the way in which it's been, uh, it's been seen but the one thing I want to make clear to you also This is off my notes, but the one thing, I won't go on too far, but the one thing I want to make clear to you about this is even though the book of Ruth has been placed in different places in the Old Testament canon, it from the beginning has always been in the Old Testament canon. Short book that it is, it has been uncontested, it has been upheld, it has been honored from the very beginning. So if you ask myself, if you ask yourself the question, well, what book would the critics say is, uh, is least likely to be uh, uh, questioned as, uh, as, as whether it properly fits in the canon, you answer this little book of Ruth. is that amazing? It's quite a book. It's quite an important book. And I want us to think about what its message is. You know, you read the whole Bible, and you're going to read a lot of, about a lot of birth scenes, a lot of nativity scenes. And there are many stories of wonderful births. But except for the story of Jesus' birth, there is no nativity story that's more beautifully told than in the book of Ruth. And there's no story that begins with greater adversity. Uh, there's no story that, is, uh, that really is less likely to have occurred in terms of a birth than this one, although many involved infertility. So with that in mind, I want to read from the beginning of the book of Ruth. Chapter one, verse one, um, the first five verses or so. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites, from Ephrathah, from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. And the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Malon and chilion the sons died so that the women were left so that the woman Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband let's peel that apart a little bit together the text begins the days when the judges ruled they were the dark ages of israel spiritually and morally the text refers to a famine in the land which meant another of god's judgments he come on Israel. And this is made clear sort of in an ironic way in our text because we're told that the famine had reached Bethlehem. And Bethlehem literally means house of bread or storehouse for grain. You read about how Elimelech fled to Moab and many commentators condemn him for leaving Bethlehem, fleeing from Bethlehem. They condemn him for fleeing from Bethlehem rather than repenting of the sin that brought God's judgment on Bethlehem and Israel in the first place. They criticize him for turning his family's future over to the cultural and spiritual influences of pagan Moab. Why would he flee from Bethlehem? And if he fled from Bethlehem, why in the world would he go to Moab? What kind of spiritual man could he be? And what about his sons who married Moabite women? Especially when the law of God in Deuteronomy declares that no Moabite is to be allowed into the assembly of the Lord. Well, fair enough. But I think the point of our text is not to underscore the faithlessness of this family, but it really is to underscore their desperation. You know, only desperation would drive an Israelite, whether a believer in the Lord or not, to flee to Moab. Moab was Israel's longtime enemy. Moab had refused Israel passage on its way to the promised land. The king of Moab had hired Balaam to curse Israel. Moabite women had gone out to seduce Israelite men and turn them away from the Lord. It was the corpulent King Eglon who was killed by the left-handed judge, Ehud, whom we studied. Well, that King Agon, he was the king of Moab. He was the oppressor of Israel. So you imagine Elimelech fleeing from Bethlehem and going to Moab, which was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and south a little bit. What prospect did this man have? And I think perhaps he didn't think beyond the prospect of starving to death if he stayed in Bethlehem. It would be better for him to give up his status as a respected landowner in in Israel and become a despised foreign worker or what in America might be called a migrant worker in Moab. What he never reckoned on was his own death. What he never reckoned on is that both of his sons would die in Moab, leaving his wife, Naomi, Destitute, absolutely destitute. A widow cut off from her family in what was predominantly a hostile culture with absolutely no security. When we look at Naomi, we see that she was essentially, as I mentioned, a kind of a female counterpart to Job. The book of Ruth begins describing her plight. And when she returns to Bethlehem from Moab at the end of chapter one in Ruth, she announces this in verse 21 of chapter one. I hope you have your Bibles open. She says, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And that was a state of mind. And that was the way she viewed her life. But when we come to the end of Ruth in chapter 4, the women of Bethlehem are rejoicing over Naomi, over this woman, over Naomi, not over Ruth. She's not the focus here. They are rejoicing over Naomi for the fact that Ruth and Boaz had given birth to to a son named Obed. The women say to Naomi in chapter four, verses 14, maybe you'd like to read it along with me. The women are chorusing, as they chorused earlier in the book. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day, they're speaking to Naomi, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, Ruth, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So really, the book of Ruth, it's called the book of Ruth, but the book of Ruth is the story of Naomi's redemption. We'll see more about what Redemption meant in that culture, in that context. But it is the story of a great uh, sacrifice selflessly being made in order to rescue, in order to save and deliver her. The book of Ruth is a love story. It's a love story on every page, and we'll examine that in detail. But today, I want to be clear with you on the sweep of the story Just as I wanted to be clear with you on the sweep of the book of Ruth in the whole canon. The book of Ruth in the whole canon has great messianic significance. And the story itself is a story of redemption. And doesn't that make sense? That the foundation for the foundation for the foundation for the birth of Jesus was laid in a beautiful love story of redemption. It begins with a grieving widow and mother, a grieving mother who bitterly complains that God has left her empty. And it ends with the women of Bethlehem rejoicing with that same woman, Naomi, over how he has filled her life by raising up a redeemer in the birth of Obed. So she goes from the beginning of the story in which she knows very little, really does not understand who God is. Seems a very harsh, a harsh judge. He's dealing harshly with her. He doesn't, she doesn't deal, the text does not deal explicitly with the fact that she may have felt responsible or Elimelech was responsible for some of their choices. The point is, that's the way she views God, a very harsh and relentless judge. By the end of the story, she realizes that God loves even her. And that he has reached out to care for her and to save her. This is a story. It is a story of redemption. Now what's important for you to keep in mind then is that in this story, Naomi essentially is a sign or symbol for someone. I don't mean she didn't exist at all. She did. But what I'm saying is she really is representative of someone as you go through the story. And if you ask the question, well who does Naomi represent? Who is she representative of? And the answer is Israel. The answer really is Israel. She's a microcosm, a representative of Israel itself. What God does for her is a sign of his will and his purpose for the nation as a whole. A nation that itself is unbelieving, that is quick to believe the worst about God, that's blind to its own actions and attitudes that may have led to its own or contributed to its own ruin. Naomi speaks to the nation. And one of the great ironies in the passage, the great ironies of the book is that God reaches out beyond the nation. He reaches into Moab and takes what by tradition is a Moab princess, I don't know that she was a princess, but takes this amazing woman Ruth in order to bring the truth, of love, the truth of God's love back into the life of Israel in a beautiful and redeeming way. When the women sing, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name, referring to the redeemer, may his name be renowned in Israel. They are doing this as they're extolling the Lord. They are pleading that Naomi's Redeemer might be renowned in Israel. That Naomi's Redeemer might somehow affect the entire nation. That he might be recognized as a Redeemer whose redemption extends beyond one humble woman. It's prophetic. They're prophesying. When they say, "May his name," when they say, "May his name be renowned in Israel," and in the author's understanding, that's exactly what God brought to pass. The book's conclusion is a finale, where we are told that the name of they named him the child Obed, which means servant or worshipper, and he was the father of Jesse the father of David, chapter 4, verse 17. And then this point is underscored by the genealogy that follows in verses 18 to 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab, And on it goes until we come to... And Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And the point, the point is that God would not let his messianic promise, he would not let his messianic promise to Israel, and in particular to Judah, die. This story of how God redeemed Naomi from her emptiness to fullness is integral to the story of how God provided a redeemer for the world. And for you and for me and for the entire world, we can describe salvation in exactly the same way, taking us from emptiness to fullness, to fullness in the fullness of life and eternal life forever. The nativity of Obed, I'm saying, bespoke the greater nativity of David, that would then occur in the same place, which bespoke the greater nativity and the fulfillment of God's messianic promise in the birth of Jesus. Well, that's my introduction to the book of Ruth. I haven't even described any of its passages. It is so rich. Y'all got to come back next week. It is a great book. But what shall we take from the heart to heart from the book of Ruth thus far? Keeping in mind how limited we, what limited way I've led us into it. Um, And I wanna make two observations. And I think these are poignant observations. I think they make the sermon worth um, preaching. The first observation is that the book of Ruth is a love story in the truest sense. Now, you don't have to know much about the book of Ruth to think about it as a love story between Ruth and Boaz. But I'm saying this is a love story in the truest sense. And by love, I refer to chesed, that Hebrew word for love or God's loving kindness. It's the Old Testament word for God's love. And I have to say that if the, book, uh, if the birth of Jesus is the story of God's incarnation how God became flesh. As we read the book of Ruth together, I hope you understand it as as a story of love's incarnation. How the love that comes from God was expressed in the lives of three people and among these people, these three people, and how they cared for one another. In particular, there's Ruth the Moabite woman who, uh, the widowed daughter-in-law, in in her complete and absolute devotion to the grieving and embittered mother-in-law, Naomi. How many women who themselves were widowed would devote themselves to their grieving, embittered mother-in-law to the extent that they would leave their own land in order to go into the land of a traditional enemy and care for someone who's grieving and embittered. There's Boaz, the established, respected older man in his complete, in his complete respect and in his compassion for Ruth. This is a story for me in this relation, I'll get to it, of true masculine and true feminine love. There's that love then that Ruth and Boaz share and, they, and that they recognize in one another that they have met their match. As many as their differences are, difference in culture, great difference in age, difference in social status, many, many differences. You'd say this could never work there was one thing that was in common for them both and they must have seen it. Both Ruth and Boaz are described in the book of Ruth as noble or virtuous. It was used of the warrior to convey the sense of great courage and great, uh, great heroism. It's used in Proverbs 31 of that virtuous, of that noble woman. And both those people are described as noble or virtuous. They're both vessels of God's love for others, a love that is full of of integrity and purity. They both love in the same way. They both love as God loves. When Obed was born he was truly a love child not simply born of this woman's love for her husband and this husband's true love for his wife but this was a child that was really born of God's love in the world. What made what made Bethlehem different? Well, in itself, Bethlehem is not distinguished in any good way. If you read about Bethlehem in the last three chapters, four or five chapters of the book of Judges, it figures into the two horrible stories that are in the last five chapters of Judges. A little bit later, Bethlehem is a garrison for the Philistines. If you go to Bethlehem today, it's a deeply divided town, largely inhabited by Muslims. And so to such an extent, there are always security issues of pilgrims who want to go there for holidays or for holy days. What makes Bethlehem really different from any other town in the world of its time and the turmoil of its, its time? I think the answer is that what makes Bethlehem difference is, is, is different is what makes any place different from the rest of the world. And what makes any place different from the rest of the world is if the love of God is in action there. That makes it memorable. That makes it worth memorializing. And we see here that God's love and the love that is to be expressed by me for you, by you for me, by us for one another, that God's love is a love that transgresses human boundaries. No Moabite would have loved an Israelite like that. No Israelite would have loved a Moabite like that. And honestly, when you look at the story of Ruth in her love for her... Widowed, bitter, mother in law, she truly is the Old Testament's good Samaritan. Amazing woman. Love is distinguished by its compassion for the outcast, for those who are. Easily forgotten for those who we would, by culture, ethnicity, background, naturally feel some alienation toward or remove ourselves from. Love is distinguished also by its selflessness with its hallmark, which is purity. It is purity. We come to this book, and what we learn is (laughs) with everything that clearly in this book there's one agenda and the agenda is to love it is to love it's not an ethnically driven agenda it's not a socially driven agenda it's not a politically driven agenda it is not a personally driven agenda it is love It's love that supersedes all the accepted rules and norms of culture for a greater person, purpose. It's love that transgresses these accepted norms. And it's love that transgresses accepted norms not only with people who are different from you, it's love that transgresses accepted norms within our families. And I speak here of compassion for the outcast. I mean, which family in our church, which which church, for that matter, beginning with atonement, doesn't have its own outcasts? Those people who you naturally would tend to withdraw from. You know, weird Aunt Fern, weird Uncle Herbie. You know, they, they, they spend their year in the, in the attic and they only come out at Christmas time. What family doesn't have that? Nowhere in scripture will you see the redeeming love of Christ more clearly displayed than in the lives of the characters of our book. So I want to invite you this morning to think dangerously with me, especially in this season of Advent, especially this Christmas time. Think about those who you love and think about how you love them. And think about those whom you do not love, although they are within your reach. And ask yourself, is it time to set aside conventional tests and conventional ideas? Is it time, like Ruth, you know, to really be a good Samaritan even within your own family? Here's my second observation. First, is that Ruth is, this book is a love story, and there's so much for us to take to heart from it. But here's my second observation that scripture everywhere speaks of a remnant. The words used a great deal toward the end of the Old Testament, but you see it here. The idea is clearly, clearly here. It everywhere speaks of a remnant a faithful people in an age of unbelief, a godly people in times of godlessness. The word remnant comes from the Hebrew verb, which is to return. return. And nine or ten times in the first chapter, something like that, a large number of times, I lose count of it. But that verb or verb forms of return, you find again and again throughout the first chapter, is these people were returning to Bethlehem, there's this return. And it's not just a return to Bethlehem, it really is a return to the worship of the Lord. And to be his people. And typically the remnant, and it's certainly true in the day of Ruth, days of Ruth, which were the days of the judges, typically a remnant is greatly outnumbered or feels that way compared with the general population. And when people who are, when people of the remnant focus on that. They easily become discouraged. They easily begin asking themselves, <clears throat> "What difference can I really make? What difference does my life really make? What difference does uh, you know, loving purely you know, really make in a sea of great impurity and great lovelessness? What impact can we can we really have?" And it dawned on me as we were praying in the uh, in the uh, vigilant. You know, when we ask ourselves that question. What difference can I really make? You know, we need to, be, we need to just ask ourselves another question. And I'm asking this because of my unbelief. Because I don't really believe that God is making a difference. And that God is very much at work. And he simply calls me to be a humbler, humble follower of him. Throughout my life. And in all my relationships. And in all my dealings. By the grace of God. Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz are part of this remnant in the day of the judges. The world seems bent on scorning God. Israel seems bent on destroying itself. Yet the truth of the matter is, whether we're talking about the nativity in Ruth or whether we're talking about the nativity, the birth of Jesus in Luke, you find the same kinds of people. You find a a remnant. And it's so clear that it is the Lord's practice to use his faithful loving remnant for far greater purposes than they imagine. And he's utterly faithful to them no matter what they may happen to be suffering or going through. We're going to sing at the end of this sermon shortly on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. That is the cry of the remnant. The Lord is faithful. And his faithful, loving remnant is not only waiting for Christ's coming, but God is using them at the same time for his great purposes, whether we see them at the moment or whether we don't. And I just would say to you this morning as Church of the Atonement, you know, is it too much for us to pray that our church might be a Bethlehem for our day, for the for the way that we live in our relationships with one another, toward the outsider, the way we love. Is it too much for us to pray that atonement could be a Bethlehem now, not only for the way we seek to emulate you know, God's love, but also for what God births here in and through this church through that amazing love that's all by his plan. Let's aspire. Let's aspire ourselves to be a Naomi or a Ruth or a Boaz and see our our village as as our Bethlehem. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this very beautiful story of Ruth it's so beautiful, I don't want us to get so caught up in the beauty we lose sight of its majesty. How messianic this book really is in the context of the canon. How it's always been honored is an extremely important book. Oh, even to this day in traditional Judaism, it's this book that's read every year out loud in the synagogues during the Feast of Weeks. This marvelous book, because there's something about it, even if we don't understand it completely, it is just so, so too, too beautiful not to esteem. And it's beautiful because of Christ, because of who you are, God, and your determination to redeem, not just a woman who's rather cranky and rather, you know, filled with grief, but really the whole world. And it is a matter of your love. Lord, what a beautiful book this is. And I pray that you'd help us take it to heart in, uh, in in its manifold wisdom and truth about you that it, reveals. And I pray that you'd really use it in our lives in very practical ways um, to help us uh, hone our understanding and our devotion to loving as you love. If for no other reason then it is just it is so beautiful to love this way. And that beauty brings glory to you wherever it's seen, even in our own lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.